Hello and welcome to the 551 Podcast. My name is Wes Berdine. Uh, it's not the offseason for Minnesota United yet. Obviously, this, uh, this coming week we've got a playoff game and uh, it will be a party at the Black Heart of St. Paul. But, um, you know, we did our season recap uh, last week with um, Jeff Reuter and Bruce McGuire. And uh, I thought, you know, rather than doing kind of a, a general kind of rehash of what um, what you always hear us say, um, uh, I, I wanted to start this kind of series that I'm going to be doing during the offseason, which is uh, going into a few people from around the, the kind of soccer uh, universe and getting to know them a bit better. Um, the, this first week uh, is a guy named Pablo Maurer, who um, many people know because he's uh, way more... Um, popular and interesting than me, um, but he is uh, with the Athletic. He writes for them now. Um, he had a, a very uh, kind of famous and, and uh, viral um, uh, photography project he worked on called the Abandoned States, and um, uh, you know we talk about kind of his life growing up and how soccer featured into it, about being a full time writer, but also about um, where kind of his interest in photography and history kind of comes from. So. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoyed uh, getting to um, get a glimpse into him. And uh, if there's kind of other people uh, you're interested in me talking to, send me a DM. I'm, I'm kind of, I've got a, a list of people who I would like to get to know more about. And so, um, yeah, without further ado, let's have big quarters and we'll come back and just pop them out. Pablo Maurer is a writer for The Athletic, who's written previously for DCist and Washington City Paper. He's also a mechanic and a photographer who's been uh, featured in National Geographic and the BBC. He can be found on Twitter dunking on people who want to stick to sprouts at MLSist. I don't know if I can say that uh, quickly well enough, but Pablo, thanks for joining me. I want to... I want to start by asking you about that introduction because there's a, a few lawyer journalists or journalists who become soccer podcasters at night or just like random, you know, the, the randos out there. But uh, mechanic, photographer, uh, soccer writer makes makes you kind of a, a, a unique bird out there. And I want you to tell me about that. Do you just have a, a an attention span problem? <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I was like a lawyer journalist or etc. I mean, th- those people have like useful skills that they can apply to this, the world of soccer journalism. I can't say that being a mechanic has ever uh, proved useful when it comes to my, my other job, I guess now my full-time job of, of covering the game. I will say I, I've, uh, there were definitely instances where I uh, worked on players' cars or gave them advice, but, uh, but nothing useful. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I worked on cars. I started working when I was 20, so like 19 years ago. Um, uh, I come from a family. Both my parents are writers, and um, uh, my mother's born in Spain, so I spent a lot of time in Spain as a kid. So naturally, the, the game just sort of creeps into your life there. There's, there's no, way to, no way around it. So I think after like you know, 12, 13 years of uh, working on cars for a living, I just sort of wanted a side hustle and just sort of um, – like flex my creative muscle a little bit. Um, so I started writing about soccer and the rest is, uh, you know, pretty unglamorous history. Do the, do the different roles uh, occupy different parts of your brain? Oh yeah, man. There's no, like, there are very, there are very few similarities. I mean, those from having 
you know, for a long time done both at once. And especially when I was freelancing for the athletic initially, um, last year, year before, I can't remember. Um, I was doing like some pretty heavy reporting and often doing it during the day from the shop. And it is a really jarring thing for your brain to go from like working on a, a Bentley to like, you know, interviewing a source or talking to a player and to have to sort of go back and forth between those things. And, um, you know, especially because also so much value is placed on being first or getting things out on Twitter, et cetera. A lot of times that proved to be a massive distraction. So I feel genuinely thankful and, uh, whatever the, the atheist version of blessed is, um, that I've been able to sort of make the jump and do this full time. Finally, yeah, it, was, it George, was a huge distraction. <laughs> George Grace, she gave you, uh, gave you the rose and you got the, uh, the full-time athletic gig. Exactly uh, how, how it worked. There were, there were like 20 of us and he, he first gave a rose to Paul Tenorio and then, you know, to Sam Stachel. And I was one of the last ones and I was like, Oh, is he going to pick me? And then he, he gave me the rose and, yeah, um, a, now we're a, uh, you know happily, happily ever after married. I guess <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that is a a, a, a really uh, shitty reality TV show that no one wants to watch. <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants nobody wants to watch that at all, yeah. except for other except for other soccer media people. Um, so so uh, tell me about your your background. You grew up in Tennessee, right? In Nashville or or near Nashville or? Yeah, sort of bounced around. I was born in Philadelphia. Okay. I moved, uh, which is where a lot of my family remained for most of my childhood. I moved to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, lived there till I was 10. Moved to Nashville, Tennessee for kind of like my formative years. Left there when I was 18, went to college in Memphis, went to college in Chicago for a while, um, which is where I started working on cars. Uh, took a job with Ferrari Maserati in Puerto Rico. So I lived in San Juan, Puerto Rico for like a year and a half. And then I moved to DC and I've been here for 13 years, I think 13, almost 14 years. Um, so I sort of bounced around, just kind of followed my, followed my parents around wherever they could get work. So was that, um, kind of, uh, moving around so much, even as an adult, was that, um, did you see that as a, a positive, um, thing? seeing different places or did that yeah. feel like tough I mean, I to think maybe like home? Yeah. Back, I guess back then I probably didn't see it as a positive because you, you know, have to make new friends and some other thing. But I think if I look at, um, if somebody describes me as like an interesting person or like a person with varied interests and beliefs, uh, I would be stupid to think that, you know, that, that doesn't have something to do with the fact that I bounced around so much. So I think, sure, I think in the end it was probably a net positive. I also lived in Madrid for a year somewhere in there when I was 14 or 15. So I lose track sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> and um, and your parents, you said you were both writers. Um, what kind of writing did they do? My dad is a, my dad is like the foremost expert in the United States on this Spanish poet, uh, Garcia Lorca. Um, and he's spent his whole life, uh, translating work as texts. He's, you know, has a, teaches uh, Spanish literature at Boston university. Um, my mother similarly was, a, a studied Spanish literature, was a Spanish teacher, uh, growing up, uh, often at the same school I went to, which was interesting in itself. Uh, <laughs> every, every teenager's worst nightmare, you know, like going to school where your mother teaches, um, so yeah, they, they both, um, 
they both sort of work in that field, Spanish literature. They have uh, written on other stuff. They wrote um, together. They wrote a biography of Walter Anderson, who's a uh, an incredible sort of sculptor and painter um, in Mississippi. They, they have they too have I think very varied interests, just like me. Do you? You know, moving from uh, being the the son of a of a kind of Lorca expert um, to dropping out of college and uh, and working on cars is is obviously a, a pretty um, interesting class shift there. Uh, I wonder if you experienced it as such, or or what your experience of of kind of moving from from you know an academic parent to to be working on cars. Oh, uh, you know, I actually, I, like, I don't think, I mean, I think maybe it was a little jarring for my parents that I was sort of, I don't want to say the black sheep, you know, but I definitely didn't share um, their academic interests or the academic interests of my brother who also um, kind of followed that path. But um, it would be totally unfair for me to say that they weren't supportive of me. I mean, they, I think, just encouraged me to do what I was passionate about. And I think they were also probably smart enough to know that I could be more financially stable um, and happier working on cars, you know? So no, I, I actually don't think, you know, I, I actually get that question a lot because people I think do assume and, and like fairly, um, you know, not unfairly that uh, a family like that, they would be like, Oh, you know, our, our son is a mechanic. What a disgrace. But no, I mean, they, I think they, um, I think they got it in a way that a lot of parents wouldn't have gotten it, you yeah. know? Um, and I, I guess, I guess, I was, I was wondering uh, le- less of, of um, you know, whether you were a disgrace to your family. So I'm glad to glad to hear about that. But, <laughs> I mean, but just in terms, that's of, a different, that's a different question. Yeah. I, you know, I never said I'm, I'm a disgrace <laughs> in other ways. You know, but uh, it's not my job. Yeah, you know, and so. I, I guess I'm, you know, there's distinct ways in which you know I'm, I'm a, a recovering academic myself, and so there's a way, distinct, different way in which you view your labor and who you are and how you relate to, to work when it is, um, when it is kind of reading, translating Lorca or something versus, you know, um, uh, figuring out a problem for why this guy's Lamborghini has a hot dog stuck in its AC or something like that. Or <laughs> I, I assume that's what you do all day, but. Uh, and, oh yeah. A lot, just, of hot, a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> and air conditioning I'm wondering yeah. if you, if you kind of, um, even just switching between the kind of, uh, um, uh, labor of being a writer who's writing about, you know, how does Wayne Rooney fit in, into these tactics versus, uh, versus the other gig and, and how that kind of, um, they're very different worlds, uh, um, both in terms of your readership, uh, is very, um, the athletic, I assume the main demographic is kind of, uh, this, this touted young urban, uh, people with middle-class people and, um, and there's just kind of interesting kind of class dynamics there. And maybe I'm curious if you observe that at all. Maybe you don't, maybe I'm just being classist myself. No, I, yeah, I mean, no, definitely. Especially given the, I mean, I, you know, there's like a whole sort of hierarchy within, um, being a mechanic, or I guess a lot of guys would say technician. I, I never, I don't know if people get offended these days if you call them a mechanic. I, I never did, but you know, I think, um, the cars I ended up working on. I mean, I was lucky enough early in my career to get on a, you know, I got a job within a year uh, at a Land Rover dealer and spent the rest of my life you know, as a mechanic working on, at the end, working on exotic cars. Um, and the clientele there definitely, especially in Northern Virginia is, you know, these are people who just 
like I can't even imagine their lives. I mean, um, a like largely conservative. B have no you know, money has literally never been an issue to them. Um, and then uh, you know the other layer, which, which obviously like there are no MLS fans that are like that for the most part. Um, the other layer to to it as well is my coworkers. You know, if you work in a shop in Northern Virginia with guys who are you know driving from even more remote parts of Virginia, West Virginia, even sometimes. Um, you work next to people with like very different political views, very different outlooks on life. Um, and you have to learn very quickly to like, uh, deal with that and like speak constructively to people about that. Um, you know, there's no, like, you know, if you're, if you're working in a shop, you're just forced to work eight feet away from somebody who you might not have anything in common with. And, um, not everything on a car can be done with one person. So you're actually going to even have to like rely rely on their help occasionally. And, um, I think that's been like a huge help, um, a huge help even in, in soccer writing to have sort of been forced to have a dialogue with people who just have completely different beliefs than I do instead of just canceling them immediately or whatever people tend to do. Um, you know, because they're, they're value in a lot of people, there, you know, a lot of people have value. I think that, that um, maybe on the internet or on Twitter, people would just sort of like uh, you know assume they were terrible human beings or this and the other thing. I, I'm rambling now, but like, yeah. Um, what, what what I'm saying is that working in an environment like that, where you're forced to sort of interact with people that you have little or nothing in common with, is definitely a help when it comes to reporting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because I'm comfortable speaking to people from you know all different backgrounds and regions of life, probably. How did you uh, get what to- I'm saying is what I'm saying is we should ban the iron flint symbol is what I'm saying. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going for. Yeah. 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 How did you get to DC? Uh, for a woman, I, I moved here. I, when I was living in Puerto Rico, I visited Chicago and ended up, uh, sort of meeting up with somebody I knew in high school. And, uh, we just like very quickly, uh, took a liking to each other um, and did like a long distance thing for very little time, maybe like a month. And then I just, you know, being a mechanic, especially if you have a highly specialized uh, specialty, I guess you could say is it's uh, you can sort of go work anywhere. You just like, pick up the phone and uh, call a Ferrari dealer and say, Hey, I have like X number of years experience on this product. And because there's like nobody else out there that works in these things, they hire you immediately. So I just did that with DC where she lives and we broke up, uh, four days after I got here. <laughs> so, um, so, but I stayed, I stayed, it was, it was weird not to like go on about this, but it was weird because I didn't know anybody here. I mean, it's the first time I've ever been in a city where I literally knew no one. And I just stayed in my apartment for a week and I was just like, uh, going crazy. And I finally walked, uh, just walked into a coffee shop in Adams Morgan, this place Trist, and just walked right up to the first like friendly looking human being I saw sat down next to him and said, you know, I don't really know how to do this, but I don't know anyone here and I don't have any friends. Um, and she actually replied, Oh, well, you know, you have one friend now. And we started talking and, uh, you know, I met like everyone I know in DC through this one person. That's amazing. Um, it is. And the, the crazy thing is I'm probably only friends with her for like three or four weeks. turns out we had like nothing in common, but the people I met through it ended up being my friends. So do you ever think about um, like, it's interesting if, if you had Go gone, gone back to that coffee shop and picked a different table and that, that person that your life would have gone 
they're yeah, the people like maybe they would I, have introduced you, know. you to. Now you'd be in this really, uh, like all my friends are really into BDSM and, and that's just my life. Now. Yeah. Like, or I mean, <laughs> I don't know about BDSM, but it's like, this is DC. So I easily could have like oh, sat yeah. down at a table with like three Republican staffers for a Senate hey, or something. And they got kings you know, too. I could, so. I could be, yeah, I could be a, I could be a proud boy in a different <laughs> life. I, I don't know. You know, but, uh, but thankfully the person I picked was, uh, was like an interesting open-minded human being. So yeah, no, it's, it's turned out pretty good. Um, when did soccer come, come into your life? I mean, you said, you said it was kind of always part of it, uh, part of it. So maybe, maybe that's the answer, but how, I guess maybe how, how did soccer feature in, in your life growing up and, and then as an adult? Uh, soccer was definitely, like I said, I mean, I, you know, my parents, both being writers and school teachers, we, we ended up having, you know, they, they also like their kids had a summer break. So we'd end up going to Spain for like two or three months to visit my mother's family and, and hang out. And, um, it is like, uh, embedded in the culture there in a way that it just isn't in the United States. I mean, that's the most obvious thing in the world to say, but it's true. Um, so for me, it's just always been part of my life. Um, I think my earliest like soccer memory would just be like kicking a, a, a you know, one of those, when I was a kid, it was like a soccer ball that had all the world flags on it. It was like the World Cup yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah. It was like every Hispanic kid had one of these. Um, kicking that around the Tiro in, in uh, Madrid. Um, and then I lived there when I was, I think, 13 or 14 or 15, one of them. And I, um, the roots of like the only club that I support would be Atletico de Madrid. And it was because I, I lived in Madrid and my entire family, they were, um, supporters of uh, Madrid, but like, because I was this contrarian asshole, 14 year old, I was like, no, I'm going to support like the other team, you know? Um, so I did it first out of spite and then it stuck uh, for better or for worse, because obviously my life would be a lot more spectacular if I supported, um, you know, one of the most successful teams in European history. I don't know if that's but, true. Um, I don't, I don't think you believe that. Yeah. I mean, I, I might just be a huge <laughs> asshole. I don't know. Um, kind of you know, if I'd done that. Yeah. But no, um, you know, the States, like so many other people, you know, I moved back and it was 94, so I guess it was 14. And um, this is actually hysterical. I, I moved back and I was like, like any 14 year old in 1994, I was like obsessed with Nirvana, right? And like Kurt Cobain committed suicide that summer. And uh, my parents, who are just incredible parents, my brother and I, who are both obsessed with Nirvana and just grunge in general, they loaded us into like this old Toyota Camry and we drove from Nashville to Evergreen, Washington to go to his gravesite. And as we were going across the country, it was during the World Cups that watched the games in hotel rooms and I was like I remember I was just, just being like, I can't believe that because it always seemed hopeless to me that soccer would even come to America in any sort of a popular sense. So I definitely very um, very vividly remember having the thought like, oh my God, is this really happening? You know what I mean? So I guess the rest is sort of history since there. And you said that you don't, you know, you don't uh, follow uh, any particular clubs. You you more follow uh, players. Um, are there are there particular ones these days that you think about a lot that you that you kind of get excited by? You know, I uh, I don't know in particular. I think if I'm like if I follow players, I mean, yeah, they're they're players I like watching play. Like you'll see, you would be one. That, you know, this year I've just been like. You know, it's hard not to enjoy watching him play because he's just sort of in video game mode 
full time. Um, but I think what I mean when I say fellow players is more that, uh, you know, when you do this job and you meet literally hundreds of players a year, um, it would be, you know, I'm not like partial to any player on the field, but I definitely probably have some partiality as like just as human beings. You know, you meet guys that you hit it off with or who you just, you know, they're genuinely easy to work with and nice guys. Um, so I'd say I end up rooting for players like that, players that I that just seem like decent human beings. Um, it's sort of maybe one reason why I got into MLS and covering MLS, but, but really more just like when I watched it initially in the 90s and early 2000s was that um, the players seemed really accessible. You know, they weren't like these elite, uh, inaccessible athletes who were behind a, you know, a velvet rope or something like that. These were dudes who probably worked at Kroger, uh, also, you know, um, so that, that part of the league has always sort of appealed to me, the kind of every man, uh, thing. And I think maybe the, uh, the players that I root for were sort of, you know, taken interest in or just, um, just genuinely good pe- people. Excuse me. Who's the most decent person you've met in your travels? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I really don't know, man. Um, gosh, that's a good question. Probably Nick DeLeon. But probably Nick DeLeon. Nick DeLeon is just like the easiest guy to to root for. Um, I've never seen him. I've never seen him at anything other than like a 5 out of 10. Um, and, and that meaning, like meaning that he's just like chill and happy at all times. Um whatever next smoking or taking, or if he's just high on life, uh, you know, I would, I would probably, probably gladly take some of that. I don't know. Well, there's all those, um, you know, every player has to figure out what they're going to do. Mike McGee's got his vodka. So Nick can get his, uh, strain, yeah. his own particular strain of legally marijuana. legalized yeah. at this point, I guess. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, who's the, the least decent? I'm just kidding. You know, oh, come on, man. That. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could answer it if you want. <laughs> like, trying to think of a player who's retired and never have to deal with again. But um, you ever I don't know. Francisco I'll just say Calvo? I'll just say that like I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna answer that question publicly. But what I would say is that um, all of us who cover the game, it's like the same five people. You yeah. get the answer. You know what I mean? Like, there's some people who are just just terrible to deal with. So. Yeah. So you, you initially came to soccer as a writer for the uh, the website DCist, um, mainly covering DC United, right? Um, can you tell me about yeah, pretty much exclusively. kind of first adventures into writing about soccer? Um, what kind of reporting did you do, and, and was it um, how like how was the process of adjusting to the process to being a, a writer and doing that kind of writing and interviewing players and things like that? Yeah, I um, I think uh, I started uh, one of my very best friends, this guy Dan Dickinson. Um, he's at Retirement FC on Twitter. He he wrote for Gothamist, which is the sort of New York version of DCist. Um, I should be more accurate to say that DCist is the DC version of Gothamist, but um, he had suggested that I do it. Um, and the my early writing, I would describe it probably as like. Um, like a little fan bloggy, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, DCS is like a, a daily blog basically. So, um, it was written in a very informal way. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think I progressed over the years, 
I ended up writing com for a few years, which teaches you how to write in a completely different way. Um, you know, but um, I would say I'm like largely self-taught uh, with influence from like other writers who I've admired and probably my dad also, who uh, was probably the best writer I know. But, but I don't know. I don't think too much about it, I guess. Lots, of, right, lots so. of Lorca res- references when you're uh, writing about <laughs> yeah. Nick Dillon. Right. There's a, a blood, blood wedding simile <laughs> in this, you know, TFC, DC United uh, gamer that I'm going to write this Sunday. People are going to be really, really confused. <laughs> what What's your relationship to DC United? Um, uh, how do you, in terms of like, um, you know, you're obviously, you, you said you're not really, a, not like a fan, but you're not, not a fan. Um, I guess just how do you view the team when they win? Are you happy or like, how do you have to, is it just completely like, you know, I just go and I watch the games or. I mean, to, to be clear, I'm definitely not a fan of DC United uh, in any way. I mean, I think uh, initially I would, I say the most attachment I've ever had to them was when I first moved to DC. I was just thankful there was a soccer team here. Um, it was like one of the things that, that kind of drew me here. I think if anything, if you cover any MLS team for whatever it's been, eight, nine, ten years now, um, and even if you supported them in the first place, which I didn't, you probably wouldn't after the eight or nine or ten years because it's like it is genuinely one of those, like once you see how the sausage is made thing, things, you know, and like by the time that you know, over the years you're dragged, uh, sort of like put through the the grinder by various PR people that said the other thing. If anything, I would say I'm I'm. If I had any predisposition with DC United, it would be to write negatively about the team. Um, so you know, maybe in a way that like uh, somebody who writes for a fan blog or somebody who used to support a team has to sort of self monitor and say like, okay, I need to be objective here. Am I injecting too much of my personal opinion? probably I have to do the opposite, which is to say like, okay, are you dragging them too hard for this? You know, like, um, because that would, that would probably be my initial inclination. But, but that having been said, I mean, I, I don't think that's ever been the case in the final product. And, um, between me and editors and everything else, I, I, um, I think I might be the only person in DC on this beat who, um, kind of gives the, team credit where it's due and also regularly takes them a task for, um, the, you know, the, any number of things that they do wrong every year. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. That would, that would be, I guess, my relationship with them. I want to switch a little bit and ask you about the abandoned States project. Um, in your, maybe you can just like, give us the, um, the description of, of your photography on there. Yeah, I guess uh, that started again probably 10 years ago. Um, I, as a kid, uh, I think maybe a byproduct of, excuse me, bouncing around so much um, was that I didn't have a ton of friends and I would just do weird shit, like just get on my bike and like ride around the neighborhood or ride to other neighborhoods. And I found myself having a sort of drawn, being drawn to these abandoned places. So I'd explore them. And then, you know, 10 years ago, um, nobody, nobody ever wants to come to these places with me. They just want me to, you know, I was, I couldn't find anyone to go with me, but people were always like, I want to see what's in there. So, um, I started photographing the places really just, uh, for my own amusement and to share them with friends. Uh, and eventually, um, 
somebody at DCS was like, Hey, you know, these would probably kill if you wanted to throw them up. And, um, I decided that instead of just sort of throwing them up with a clickbaity kind of like, uh, here's a, here's a haunted mental hospital or some, whatever the bullshit is people typically do that. If I was going to do that, I would share the photos with, um, an essay or sort of first person accounts of the place. Um, so that's how that series was sort of born. Uh, I guess, you know, I just took an interest I already had, um, uh, dug into the history of the places and, and put it out there to share with the world. And I, it's been a while since I did one of those pieces. I mean, I'm preoccupied for the most part with my work at the athletic, but, uh, you know, they, they seem to have done pretty well by and large. There's kind of a, a cottage industry, uh, that kind of tourism where people talk about the abandoned and hidden places in, in big cities. I know I went to Paris a few years ago and, and had read about this abandoned rail line that circles the city. And once I knew, mm-hmm. once I knew where to look for it, it was just like right there, right next to where I was already going. But I was, I was there alone and I'm, I'm a total and utter coward. Um, so I'm wondering, are are you a coward? Or you, I mean, obviously not. So do you do you seek that sort of stuff? Every, out? Is that every podcast? Somebody asks me, "Am I a coward?" Yeah. If I get this question one more time, <laughs> are you a coward, Pablo? <laughs> um, no, I'm like probably the opposite of a coward in that, like uh, maybe not the opposite. Maybe it's even worse. Like uh, I guess the, being the opposite of a coward, being being brave. I think I'm just stupid. Uh-huh. You know, like I. Um, I don't have a fear of these places. I mean, I have been in some really precarious situations. I think I wrote an essay on getting arrested uh, by a SWAT team in Pennsylvania at a, at a, um, an old resort, you know, like go with a AR 15 pointed at me. But I, I've also done stuff that's just objectively stupid, like gone with a friend and hiked, you know, an eighth of a mile into the side of the mountain and do an abandoned mine shaft and climbed up two stories inside the mountain and had, I, it's just like, you know, all kinds of really dumb shit. So like, no, I've never, I, if anything was, I'm like most comfortable in those places. In fact, I would say that even as a kid and certainly as an adult, um, I found it's, it is a meditative experience for me to go to these places. There's no power. There's typically no cell phone reception. There's, there are no people, really just like animals and whatever the uh, like sound and visual of the place kind of falling back to ruin is that's all you have. Um, so it can be an incredibly spiritual, beautiful experience. Um, and I'm not somebody who's, who's prone to like feeling that way about a lot of stuff. I'm not religious. I'm not, you know, I don't like have uh, live, laugh, love signs in my apartment, whatever, you know, I just like uh, that, that to me is like my, sort of spiritual home probably is, is in one of those places. There's the added advantage of, um, you know, every time you go, you can just imagine yourself as the, the first being in living in the first three minutes of a horror film. So you, yeah, get, or you just, get to be uh, the guy who, after the, after show. the, yeah, after the nuclear fallout or whatever, yeah. you know, um, so, uh, one of the things that you've done is um, look back into the history of some old soccer clubs like the NASL Team America or Washington Diplomat, et cetera, uh, Boston Blast, etc. I'm wondering if looking into those teams bears any relationship relationship to the the abandoned vacation spots in the Poconos, or or if there's <laughs> is there yeah if there's some some sort of similar drive there. Uh, you know, no one's ever asked me that before, but it's a really good question. I think there probably is, um, because I get the same 
feeling walking through one of those places as maybe I do like laying out uh, old negatives or slides on a light table and you feel like you're sort of uh, like turning the lights back on at a place that's been dark for years. Um, so I think maybe there is a chance that that sort of, uh, that sort of activates the same center in my brain. I think a lot of it with DC teams is, uh, is people around here. And I guess this is probably true in every city in the U S but, um, it's like the Washington diplomats or, you know, all these other teams, the darts, the whips, you know, keep going back and back and back. Um, you know, the stars, all that sort of stuff. They didn't exist to most people. Um, and it's just like mind boggling to me that, that Johan Cruyff played, you know, a year and a half in DC. And it's just sort of like an afterthought. I always see these sort of conversations that local sports writers have. And it's usually, the people involved are like Alex Ovechkin and Bryce Harper. And they're like, who is the most, who is the greatest DC sports player ever? And it's like, you would get laughed out of the conversation if you said Johan Cruyff, but that's actually the answer. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he was, in, for my money, the greatest midfield ever, midfielder ever, my money, most people's money really. And um, he played here, not necessarily, I mean, it was a tail-ish end of his career, but he, you know, after he left, he went right back to, the Netherlands and um, won a league title. And, you know, it certainly wasn't like a, a you know, washed up, you know? So uh, to me, it's, it's like mind boggling that he existed here soccer wise. And so many people don't even seem to think about that. It's, it's crazy. So to, I mean, it doesn't seem like you're a, a nostalgic person, but that your, your interest in history there is, is something different of, of maybe, maybe more of, of digging, digging into something that, that may be a, a kind of un, a hidden nugget uh, and ar- archivist or, or, or something like that, more interest in it. Yeah. I mean, I would say like with, with the abandoned States projects in particular, there was one I did on um, this on St. Elizabeth's hospital, uh, which was this massive, you know, uh, not, not so massive anymore, but at one time the largest mental facility in the United States and this huge federally run hospital. And, this uh, this guy Walter Friedman, who was like uh, America's most notorious lobotomist, he kind of uh, honed his skills in this this basement theater morgue, right? It's like a a morgue with like uh, you know raptors and stuff that students can sort of observe you, you know, working on the corpse, whatever you want to call it. And you know the the craziest part of you know I, I went to that morgue and broke in and took photos. Of and they were great and stuff and whatever. And I did all the research and talked to Freeman's kids. And, but really the best part of that was, you know, his, he donated his entire collection to GW uh, before he died. And I spent two days in the library, like going to his personal effects or like, I mean, surgical instruments. And like, uh, you know, I went to the library of Congress and found old archival photography from the early 1900s of the morgue and um, stuff like that is really kind of what, uh, what motivated me. So you're probably right. It is maybe just like, uh, um, and that, that might, you know, it, it's maybe more a research thing. And that, that might be something that comes from like, you know, working on cars is definitely very mentally stimulating, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't stimulate the same areas of your brain that, that working in an archive does or something like that. So I think, um, I think maybe I found that lacking and went that direction because of that. I'm not sure. What what's your biggest um, uh, non soccer interest? 
recreationally? Like, what is, what's your, do you obsess over, over things? Oh, drinking. Um, I don't know. Not, probably not drinking. Um, <laughs> let me, let me, let me get a two over on that one before people think I have a drinking problem. Um, I, I like, uh, I like riding my bike a lot. Um, I've done a lot of longer rides and stuff, something that I was obsessed with for, for years. Um, I play a lot of video games, which is a sad thing to admit, but it's, it's true. Um, you know, I read a lot. I probably have a lot of interests. Um, I don't know which one of those would be like the one that I'm obsessed with, you know? Um, I mean, I, I I already, I just we've already you. talked about how you, you already split your brain into multiple spaces and, and doing it all. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You, have you, have you traveled much to, to watch soccer? Not as much as I'd like to. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been to uh, Spain and France and Italy uh, and then just the U S and Canada, never been to Mexico, South America. I mean, I think I like a lot of other people, probably like my bucket list game that I'd want to go to just as a fan is probably, um, Boca river. You know, it's like, it seems like the craziest possible experience. Um, but no, I'd, I'd love to do that more. You know, I think my, soccer writing is so laser focused on MLS um, that even like I even sometimes struggle to cover the U S national team, you know, just because uh, my brain is kind of so narrowly uh, focused soccer wise, but, but no, I'd, I'd love to travel more. Just I haven't had the opportunity to do it. What do you, I guess in general, uh, I'm wondering, I, I, I I'll, I'll say this. I experience soccer very much through, um, needing some sort of vested interest. Uh, um, a lot of times it's a lot, a lot of times hard for me to just passively watch a game. Um, and Mm -hmm. it it sounds very different from your experience of soccer. So I'm, I'm wondering what your, um, you know, not when you're at a DC United game, you go to a random game. Let's say you're, you're going to visit someone in, uh, in, in Italy and you guys go see whatever game. Uh, what do you, how do you experience it? What what does soccer give to you? Well, I mean, I do still love the sport for sure. And like I, it's funny you asked that. I just went to uh, a, it was a game in Richmond. It was a kickers versus Ford Madison. <clears throat> I went there just because Ford Madison, obviously they're so, they have such a unique brand and they're so I, I was sort of joking with the team president that they're like every soccer writer's favorite team now. Um, yeah, yeah. so I was like, my, I was my like, favorite team. So yeah, absolutely. Ex- exactly. <laughs> so like I, I definitely went, um, and very, I went very deliberately thinking, look, I just have to go to like one game a year that I'm not writing about mm-hmm. because it keeps me sane, you know? And I, I, I found it's almost always a USL game. Um, you know, there's just like, I have too much skin in the MLS game. If I go to a USL game, I'm not writing about it. It's like, it has a sort of like minor league vibe that I genuinely love anyways. Um, you know, then I can just sit there in the stands and, and watch the game and, you know, I don't know, experience the things that not just soccer fans, but all, all sports fans, uh, experience. Like you ever been, I was thinking at this Richmond game, it's, you know, I, I grew up in Nashville, like you said, and one of my first jobs, I was actually my first job, I was selling souvenirs, the minor league baseball team down there. And I remember he would, I, you know, 
I would sit in the stands. They'd give you an inning off. That was your break. I'd sit in the stands in that inning, and you just the experience of like being in a stadium and feeling the air get cooler, you know, and the sun goes down. All these like intangible things that you associate with being a, being at a sporting event. Like I still really love those. You know, I, I still get you know if I like I said I'm not a DC United fan, but I definitely was at United train today, and I felt this fall weather and you can feel sort of playoffs in the air and you get kind of hype about it, you know, like um, I'm definitely perfectly capable of experiencing all those things. And, you know, I, there were times last year, for example, when United were in really good form and Rooney was doing all kinds of crazy shit and I would be in the press box and without any rooting interest, I would just sort of marvel at what was happening, you know? Um, so, so no, I'm definitely, um, you know, I, I'm still capable of like having a kind of innate enjoyment of the sport for sure. It's not, it's not quite all business to me yet. So, so yeah. And I, I want to kind of finish up just talking about your transition to becoming a full-time writer. Um, you, you said you kind of avoided it for a while and I know you've said it cause being a mechanic is kind of a, not a cushy gig, but you can get, you can get, make a pretty good living off of it. Um, you're, you're still doing a little bit of working in a shop, right? But not, not that much. Is that my, I... I mean, very, very limited. Okay. Like I, I found a space with two other friends who one's a motorcycle mechanic. The other one works on cars where I can basically just go work wherever I, you know, whenever I want. But you know, my, my first priority is always my work writing, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a very limited amount that I can do. What, what made you finally d- decide to, uh, to, to try to do that or, or to do that? Um, you know, I think working on cars, at, even at even at the highest level, if you're working on exotics or something like that, it's um, it is mentally and physically incredibly taxing, and uh, physically especially. You know, it's like you are just on your feet for like 13, 14 hours a day. You know, it's one of those jobs where if there's work to be done, you just stay and you do it. You know, you just stay late, whatever. You work through lunch constantly. There's um, this is going to sound a little weird to people, but I, I swear to God, it's true. Like I, I, I often laugh cause like I hear people talk about uh, quote unquote toxic masculinity. And I think to myself, like, dude, I have had coworkers who have literally been killed by that or like mm-hmm. have formed drug addictions to like painkillers over that because there's this attitude in a shop where if you don't do those things, if you don't stay 14 hours a day, if you don't, um, you know, if you have a gash in your hand, you don't just put super glue on it and keep working. You're any number of things, right? Like you can imagine the names that people call others there, you know? So like, um, that to me was like exhausting. I just thought, you know, man, I'm like 38, 39 years old. Um, if I'm going to have a kid, if I haven't had any kind of a life, I have to make this, this jump, you know? And, um, the other thing too is, you know, I still have all my tools. I'm still, probably the best mechanic that, you know, and like I could still just shove them back into a shop tomorrow and start again. You know what I mean? So like I do have uh, thankfully a safety net. I think that a lot of writers don't, you know, so um, I would have been dumb not to, not to try this, you know, like every writer, um, every so writer knows a brewery where they can go work as a, as a mark in the marketing department. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so let, let me just, has it changed your, um, uh, now doing this full time and thinking about DC United and covering these guys is not just this, you know, side thing that you do. Has it changed your perspective on on the team or or on soccer at all? 
um, has going full time changed my perspective. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, if anything, it would it would go back to the how the sausage is made thing, just because I have yeah. uh, now I've, I've like made it my job to sort of dig in the the nitty gritty of stuff. Um, like I have a couple pieces running the next day or two that might even speak to that a little bit more. Um, and like, so it does become more of a slog, you know, like, uh, you have less distance from it. Um, you know, sort of like live, eat and breathe it right now. So yeah, I would say if anything, it's just made it more, um, it's sucked a little bit more of the enjoyment out of it, but, but I still love what I do, you know? So, um, still worth it. What do you think the, the most, um, I don't know whether, you know, I guess when you break something, it's exhilarating, but when you write just a, a good piece that that's not breaking it, there's, there's kind of uh, a different emotion there of, of pride or, or whatever. What's the, what's kind of your best moment as a, as a writer that where you've, you've felt joy or whatever that is. Uh, I really get off on like thoroughly deeply reported pieces more than I get off on breaking news. I mean, obviously like you'd, you'd like to do both. Um, but the way this industry is set up, that's not always the case. I mean, I, I, I do 100% believe that the athletic is like committed to going deep before getting something out first. Um, and that I appreciate. I mean, if I had to like uh, single out one moment, it would probably be, you know, I, I put out a piece that legitimately went like internationally viral probably three years ago. Um, where like I'd, I'd found a box of postcards of these Poconos and Catskills resorts and spent, I don't know, on and off probably every weekend for a year and a half, two years going to these places, kind of recapturing those same settings uh, and modern day imagery and sort of animating the postcards, you know, sort of like fade mm-hmm. in and out of time. And um, that's something that like got like, somehow all of my childhood I don't like, like PB Herman was like tweeting about it. Right. And saying, Oh, this is incredible. Like it was, it was a really strange experience and it went like, uh, you know, internationally viral and, you know, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm a sucker for that sort of adulation. And, um, <laughs> I mean, not that you know, people, people aren't, so you, you can, yeah, people just don't admit it, you know, yeah. but I mean, it, it was definitely gratifying to have something I worked a year and a half on be, appreciated for what it was, you know? Um, so no, I, I definitely like that, but you know, like the piece I just put out, um, about the union's relationship with Chester, Pennsylvania, that's yep. a good example of one that like, that is not breaking news in any way whatsoever. In fact, it's been written about before, um, in different ways, you know, but it's like something that I committed to reporting properly and, um, and, and trying to go deeper into it than others have. And I think it came off really well and it's, at least a quasi important piece. So yeah, probably these pieces like that, you know, a piece like that, that, that piece was really uh, great. So listeners can go, go check it out on the relationship of the, the union to Chester, but also how the stadium works in. I, I, I grew up, uh, um, not terribly far from, from there in Pennsylvania. And so I, I go to, go to union games when I'm, when I'm back in Pennsylvania. And it is a, um, it's a really fascinating story. Like most of these, um, stadiums in the suburbs, um, but particularly in Chester, where it is, um, you know, it's a kind of a bombed out town. Um, and there, uh, there's a lot of uh, history of people coming in and saying they're going to develop these things and whatever. And the money never ends up in the hands of 
the people in Chester um, from, from whom so much has been kind of ripped out of their hands. Uh, that I, I really enjoyed that piece. So, um, uh, so thanks. Yeah, I think it might, like, here's my main thing with, with Chester is like, uh, no, it is not the Philadelphia Union's responsibility to like uh, erase decades of, um, you know, financial mismanagement and racial injustice and all this other stuff. But I think the bottom line is like when you come to a community that's underserved like that and you take $80 million in public money and you say openly, we're going to revolutionize the city and blah, blah, blah. You like you signed a contract. You have an obligation to serve those people. And I think um, I'd read other pieces about their relationship with Chester. But what I always noticed was that the, all the voices in those pieces were voices of the team and voices of city hall. And I think those are important yeah. voices, obviously, but like, this is America, man. There's like often a disconnect between people that we elect to represent us and, and us, you know? So I just thought it needed to be a little bit more man on the street, you know? And I think the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, predictably what I found was you talk to local business owners and they would say things like, look, nobody here is asking the union to like rain down millions of dollars on us. We just like, here are things that they can do that are even free mm-hmm. that would help. You know, um, it's, it's some ignorant asshole in the comments being like, Oh, it seems like all these people in Chester want handouts, which is just like, I just wrote about this, that the soccer team got an $80 million handout, yeah. you know, like the, 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 you miss, uh, you know, your your ire is directed at the wrong people here, you know. So this, I just it's a complicated story that will probably be written again in five years unless they actually move. Yeah. Um. You know. But yeah, it was it was an interesting one to dive into. Well, I want to um say thank you uh, for giving me your time and and just uh, kind of talking about yourself, which I know is really difficult to do for. Uh, <laughs> but um, but um, <laughs> thanks so much for uh, the 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 great writing you do, um, entertaining us on on. Twitter as well and uh, and everything so uh, thanks so much yeah of course Wes thanks time.